Hey, this is Hear This Idea. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Richard Bruns. Uh, Dr. Bruns is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. And before that, he was a senior economist at the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. So if you are thinking about pandemics, then one kind of obvious risk factor is the fact that most of us are spending, I don't know, 80, 90% of our time indoors in buildings with unfiltered air where everyone is just breathing in a bunch of pandemic potential germs that everyone else is breathing out. Uh, but of course, that also means that if indoor air were cleaner, then we just get way fewer respiratory infections in general, things like flus and colds. And less obviously, it turns out that fine particles in untreated air have a similar health burden again because they cause heart attacks and strokes. But then we also just have very concrete ideas for how to make indoor air cleaner, things like filtration and far UVC light. And so it's fairly easy to imagine a world where we just get our act together and save maybe hundreds of thousands of lives in the process. And Dr. Bruns has actually been doing a bunch of modeling and cost-benefit analysis around indoor air quality. So he was a very good person to speak to and he was able to get fairly concrete about the kind of policy changes that could really help. Uh, we also talked about how cost-benefit analysis works in general, why abolishing the FDA might not be a great idea, and, and much more. But yeah, very important problem and one we know how to fix, which is great. Okay, here is Richard Bruns. Richard Bruns, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. How do you describe what you get up to right now? Very briefly, I am an economist that specializes in cost-benefit analysis of public health policy. For the past four years or so, I've worked at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, which is a think tank funded by OpenPhil, among others, attached to Johns Hopkins University. Before that, I was at the Food and Drug Administration, the food part mostly, for seven years doing regulatory impact analysis of government policy. And what are you currently working on, if there is one big thing? Mainly for the past couple of years, I've been doing a lot of work on indoor air quality. We've got a lot of projects going on at the center, and I'm working on our Model State Act for indoor air quality. And also, I've been on the ASHRAE 241 Infection Control Standards Committee. Awesome. And I hope to talk about both of those things. And I guess I mentioned this before we started recording, but... The reason I'm especially excited to have this conversation is that um, be persuaded that indoor air quality just seems like a very big deal and also seems relatively under-discussed, at least until recently. But just to begin with, what are we talking about when we use this term indoor air quality? Okay. So basically what it sounds like, any condition uh, inside that affects the air, it's there's a lot of things involved with it, some more substantial than others. Historically, indoor air quality has mostly been thought of as thermal comfort or the humidity level, because that's what people can immediately hear and perceive. So for a mm. long time, all of the HVAC, that's heating, ventilation, and air conditioning engineers, were really just focused on how do we get people comfortable inside? And that is important. I mean, when people are very uncomfortable, you have serious productivity effects. Um, like there are a lot of places, non-air conditioned workshops in the global south, et cetera, even some other places have serious productivity effects. Mm -hmm. But in recent years, we've much more concerned with 
contaminants that are invisible. You don't even smell them or notice them, but they have serious long-term health harms. And one of the main ones of those is fine particulate matter or PM2.5, and also, of course, respiratory viruses and other pathogens. Okay, got it. And I guess we should take those both in turn. So PM2.5, I guess I also had PM5. Um, yeah, what, what does that mean? Is this like tiny bits of dust in the air? Yeah, the number is the size. PM2.5 is smaller than 2.5 microns in diameter. Okay. Uh, you probably have seen a picture of like a little, a bunch of these can be strung around a human hair, like a beaded necklace. So these are extremely small. They bypass all of the filters in your nose and airways designed to trap these things. Often go straight into the lungs, straight through into the bloodstream where they often cause heart attacks and strokes after chronic exposure, even acute exposure if there's enough of them. Mm -hmm. Is that the main um, health burden of the particular matter in the air? Or is there some like cognitive effects as well? Yes. If it's not a respiratory virus event, then yes, PM 2.5 is what kills you. There's a bunch of other stuff that people might talk about. Um, nitrogen, like NOx, SOx, um, Mm -hmm. the oxides, terpenes, formaldehydes, a bunch of chemicals and gases, and they can cause problems. The reason that people talk about them is they tend to be more industrial contaminants, like in a factory, you'd have really high levels of these things, and it was an OSHA-type issue. But most of those have basically, like, that's not as much of an issue anymore. And I, I've seen some analysis of this. People look at the quality-adjusted life years, or qualies or dollies, that are caused by these different, all these different contaminants, and the particulate matter is an order of magnitude higher than even the second place contaminant. Okay, so ahead. to a first approximation, the thing that kills you with bad air quality is particulate matter and pathogens. Okay, and just the mechanisms from the particulate matter, which just cause these like quality losses or deaths, this mm. is respiratory illness, heart attacks, anything else? Actually, no. Uh, okay. It's, it goes straight through into the bloodstream. So most of what they cause, well, respiratory illnesses are a big chunk of it. There's definitely asthma and other kind of things, but there's a giant pile of studies. Usually these are based on outdoor contaminants. Like there's a lot of data coming out of China where they have like how the levels change or different levels in different cities, but there's noticeable changes in all kinds of cardiovascular illnesses from this stuff when it gets too high. Okay, right. Got it. And um, I noticed you didn't mention carbon dioxide, but people like to talk about, you know, CO2 buildup, having these kind of cognitive effects. I don't know if that translates into quality losses. You know. Basically, CO2 is an indicator rather than a target. Okay. Yeah. Like it's easy to measure. And if the CO2 is high in a level, it means that the ventilation isn't very good. So it's a very reliable indicator. Like if the CO2 spikes above 1,000, definitely above 2,000, it means you've got too many people in the room exhaling too much stuff and the HVAC system isn't cycling mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a sign that you're at much higher risk from especially respiratory viruses because you're breathing in air that's been breathed out by other people. But the CO2 itself, the evidence is kind of mixed. Like in submarines, the levels are super high and they don't seem to be having a, a huge effect. So it really okay. is mixed. Some people will be more sensitive than others, but it's, again, not, not, even if even with the higher levels of reported harm from 
it's nothing near the PM 2.5. Okay, got it. So there's particular matter as one of the big drivers of deaths and health costs. The other one is pathogens. Are there particular yes. pathogens that are at the top of the list? Basically, the pathogens that kill people. Like every year, <laughs> flu kills 50,000 people in the United States. I don't know what the stats are for the UK and Europe, but it's a similar percentage of the population. So in G7 countries, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of deaths per year from the flu. We're not entirely sure what endemic COVID is going to look like, but I'm fairly certain it's going to be at least as bad as that. Huh. Like you look at the last winter of COVID. I mean, best case scenario, we get an updated booster for COVID every year, but there's going to be new variants, new stuff happening. We're not even sure about long COVID. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. But the total Dolly loss from persistent COVID into the future could be anywhere from the same magnitude as seasonal influenza in the past to like four or five times as bad. Okay. And just speaking at a high level, when you're comparing the Dolly or Quali losses from um, the particular matter on one hand and pathogens on the other hand, accepting pandemics, so just endemic <laughs> things like, like the flu or maybe endemic COVID, does one stand out as just much more of a cost than the other? No, the confidence intervals overlap. As, as okay. I said, they're both pretty big. We're not entirely sure. Like there, there needs to be a lot more research, even on the PM 2.5. We know it's bad. But there's a big uncertainty in the confidence intervals. So, yeah, they overlap so much. We don't know for sure which one is bad. Yeah. New strain of COVID, long COVID being worse of a long-term Dolly cost than we think could make it a lot worse. Uh, but there's we're also uncovering new things about how bad the PM 2.5 is. So, yeah, they're both pretty bad. Got it. And can you say a bit, maybe this is like too much of a question to bite off at once, but a bit about how you go about coming up with the estimates for the costs of poor indoor air quality? Well, first of all, almost everybody who dies from the flu is going to be dying from getting the flu inside. Yeah, okay. There's, I mean, 90, over 90% of respiratory virus transmission is indoors. Quite a lot of that could be prevented by better indoor air quality. So it, yeah, the pathogens are almost entirely an indoor air quality problem. The PM 2.5, less so because a lot of that comes from outside. In general, indoor air actually has lower levels of smog in most areas than outside air because there's a lot of sinks, like they just kind of get sucked into the carpet and walls and stuff. And especially if you have any kind of good filtering system, as people would have learned in the wildfires, you close up your windows, run the air through a good filter, the particulate matter inside is actually better than the stuff outside. Now, there's a lot of outgas, like chemicals, like chemicals in your house, like the formaldehyde, stuff like that, that you smell, especially anything coming off of like, glue and solvents and cleaning chemicals, those are often worse inside. But again, that's not the stuff that kills you. I still like opening the windows and getting fresh air when it's not, you know, a smog alert. Mm -hmm. Yeah, got it. But for how the research happens, I don't know that many technical details of this. It's one of those pretty much received wisdom that I don't have any reason to doubt, but it's very rare for people to catch COVID outdoors, relatively rare for people to catch flu. You can look at mm -hmm. kind of a, con uh, there's a bit of contact tracing there, a bit of statistical epidemiology of what were people doing, where do those spread events come from? Mm -hmm. If anything, COVID was a, told us a lot more about how these things spread because 
unlike flu, it was a new thing in the population that there was a lot of effort doing contact tracing in a new strain. So you could actually say, okay, mm -hmm. how did this person yep. get sick? And we assume that COVID and flu spread in relatively similar ways. Yep. As to how we know about the PM 2.5, again, they, a lot of the research there is very much city level observational stuff. We see one city has higher smog levels. Um, we do the observational things. There's, there's a variety of estimates. They all seem to be pretty strong pointing in the same direction. I don't know if you've heard about the natural experiment of closing toll plazas or switching to easy pass. I haven't. You want to say about that? Okay. So this is the kind of experiment um, that economists will often like. Even back when I was in grad school, a lot of the economists were very skeptical about this epidemiological literature on the harms of air pollution. Uh, I mean, you probably are familiar with or you've posted Alex Tabarak on his blog has talked about the increasing literature. But economists typically don't trust the kind of observational epi studies that think you're not correcting for enough stuff. And there's definitely a lot of value in that criticism. But a large pile of weak evidence is still pretty suggestive if you have some trust that people aren't trying to push an agenda, which I kind of do. But the example of the toll plaza is they basically switched to easy pass at a certain date. So when you don't have easy pass, everybody is slowing down, you know, paying money into or uh, to the boot attendant or throwing it in the basket. When they switch over to easy pass, you're just driving straight through. So you don't have the calls stop, the cars stalling and idling. And so they've proven that, yeah, it generates a lot more pollution. And this was basically an exogenous natural experiment that showed like, this had nothing to do with the demographics or characteristics of the neighborhood. It's just some, they randomly put easy pass at this toll station. And you can look at the rates of asthma and other illnesses in the neighborhood and they drop pretty substantially. So that tells you that the smog and pollution coming from the cars had a clear causal effect on the population nearby. So, okay, the areas near to these tolls are getting some pollution from them. Yeah. We have this natural experiment where some of those tolls are being closed for random reasons or they're being closed at random times. Exactly. And the effects are big enough that we can observe them in asthma rates or whatever? Yes. Okay, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, so I'm actually, uh, this is something that I'm working on at the estimated cost-benefit analysis for our Model State Indoor Air mm. Quality Act. And basically, uh, the three main numbers that I'm looking at, uh, I the the monetized DALI improvement from reduced virus transmission mm -hmm. should be about 600 to 3,000 per person per year. Okay. The reduced PM 2.5, but basically about 1,500 per person per year. I think that's the high end and the low end is about half of that. And then you have the estimated productivity losses of people functioning better. That's probably about 400 to 1,500 per person per year. Wow. So overall, overall benefits from reasonable improvements in indoor air quality. This isn't like the total cost of things affecting you. This is we bring bad buildings up to the reasonable standards. Uh, you're looking at single digit thousands per person per year in benefits for a cost of dozen, like probably about 100 bucks okay. per person a year at most for the cost of the better HVAC system and filters and electricity to keep it going. Okay, so we have three numbers there. One was the dollarified health cost from breathing in particulates in the air. Uh, the second was 
the health cost from pathogens. And then the third was just the general cost from productivity losses from generally bad air. Is that right? Yes. Okay. I think I can understand how you might figure out the productivity losses from unfiltered air. But could you say something about how you might figure out the health costs in dollar terms? Sure. Basically, the methodology is the one used by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services for valuing morbidity and mortality risk reductions. It's a standard procedure, you know, the same one I used at FDA. Mm. It's basically the value of a dolly is about half a million a year. Mm -hmm. So you calculate how many uh, disability adjusted life years or quality adjusted life years. They're basically the same uh, for this calculation. How many of those you gain, multiply that value by half a million. Um, you, if EPA and HHS have slightly different values and there's a bit of, um, uh, complexity about how it's measured, but basically it's half. The easy numbers to remember, which will change a bit with inflation, but not the inflation still hasn't moved them outside of the confidence intervals yet. Value of a statistical life, about $10 million. Value of a quality adjusted life year or a disability adjusted life year, about half a million dollars. So presumably these VSL figures or these dollar figures for a DALI or a Quali they're not just uh, made up because they sound right. So could you say where these numbers come from? They basically come from a revealed preference. Almost all of the numbers come from differentials in jobs. So you basically try to find jobs that appear to be observably identical in all of the characteristics. Some jobs have a higher risk of death than others. You look at how much more people have to be paid for that risk. So this $10 million, is, it isn't something that an economist just decided in terms of, oh, I'm going to put a value on a human life. Mm -hmm. It's basically looking at the choices that people make about their own lives and their own salaries. Mm -hmm. So one way of thinking about it uh, that's a little uh, almost edgelordy, but not entirely not wrong, is when we say the value of a statistical life is $10 million, we're not making a value judgment when we say the value of a statistical life is $10 million. We are making a prediction that if a government does something that sucks $10 million out of the economy, that will lead to people changing their behavior in ways that cause somebody to die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if the government collects more than $10 million in taxes to save a life, it will statistically kill more people than it saves because you know poverty kills people and you've made people poor. Okay, and this comes from an observation that people in general are going to have some rates at which they trade off more salary against an increased risk of dying uh, in, in choosing a job where they have a choice. And then if you become wealthier, you can afford to place a higher dollar value on your safety, and so similarly, if you become poorer, then money is going to be relatively more valuable uh, than your safety per dollar because money has diminishing value to you. And so you're more likely to take more risk to your life in choosing a job. Uh, and from that, you can get some kind of sketchy number for the value of a statistical life by just looking at, uh, for instance, the pay differences between safe and risky jobs, exactly. and then figuring out what that says about how people are implicitly valuing 
uh, a year of expected life for themselves. Is that roughly right? Yeah. And they're, they're pretty wide. Like, you know, there's a wide array, array of values, but the, the average of that generally converges to 10 million in an advanced country. Of course, the, and this is one of those things that it's easy to get misquoted and can be confusing. But when we say the value of a Dali or a statistical life is lower in poor countries, that's not at all a judgment on the value of their lives. It's, again, the empirical prediction. If you take 10 million in taxes out of a poor country, you will statistically kill a lot more people than you would if you take 10 million in taxes out of a G7 country, because the people in those poorer countries are in a situation such that they have fewer resources and they're forced to accept a higher risk of dying for their additional wages and so on. Yeah, it's not a good thing that these numbers are sometimes low and let's care about making them high. And you have to be very careful on that. Like some of the, even the official documents for doing this put up by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, like they make this mistake of if you prioritize health interventions based on how much val monetized value that they're giving and you use a lower monetized value in a poor country, you are actually discriminating against poor people. So that's why I think it's very important whenever you're doing any cross-border analysis of the costs and benefits of a health intervention, what you should do is convert the dollars into health loss, life expectancy loss, based on the exchange rate in the place you're taking the money from. So the conversion, the value that you place on the life should always be based on where the money's coming from, not where it's being spent. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, if you are proposing a government policy that takes you know, $10 million in taxes from the people in DRC and uses it to try to save so many lives, you'd better be saving a lot more than one life. You'd better be saving hundreds of lives for that $10 million that you're taking away from extremely poor people because taking, you know, taking $10 million away from people in the DRC is going to kill at least dozens of people. Mm -hmm. So that's why you should use the lower value for statistical life if you're taking money from them. But if you're taking money from rich people to give to poor countries, I think it's fundamentally wrong to use the lower VSL uh, based on that country. Does that make sense? I think that makes sense. Does that mean, for instance, that for the same amount of money in the same currency, you should always expect to be able to save more lives in the country with the lower value of a statistical life? Actually, no. Uh, the value of a statistical life doesn't tell you how many lives you can save. I mean, it typically winds up being correlated, of course. But how many lives that you can save by spending money must be based on an evaluation of that particular program. Mm-hmm. The value of a statistical life is our best estimate of how many people you're going to kill by destroying that much economic activity in that country via taxes or regulation. Yeah, okay, that's useful. Um, and one thing that implies, I guess, is that the richer a country gets, the smaller the cost in expected deaths, excess mortality, from raising the same absolute amount of taxation per person. Of course, because by definition, people in a rich country have, like you could think of people picking lower and higher hanging fruit. It's like yeah, the richer yeah, yeah, you yeah. get, the more you, money you have to spend on doing things that reduce your personal risk. And assuming people generally spend these things in a rational manner, uh, they're going to start by buying more and more stuff for themselves. So you're yeah. 
taking less marginally valuable purchases away from people when you tax richer people. Yeah, that makes sense. I kind of want to ask about interventions for indoor air quality now. So, okay. I mean, I think there's a very obvious high level question here, which is just what is on the menu for improving air quality indoors in, let's say, rich countries where most buildings are going to have some kind of basic measures? So, what are the top things? Well, your blog post has a really good summary of the tech. You even found uh, the warnings about indoor smog and GUV. So, mm-hmm. I don't think in terms of that technical stuff, I have that much to add, but I guess if you want me to repeat for your listeners, I can. That would be useful. I'm going to guess that most people haven't read that. Okay. So basically the best interventions are fil- is filtration. You run air through a good filter, MER 13 or better, and that cleans the crap out of it. You want, that can be done through either the central HVAC system or portable in-room filter units. The, what I what you should always do, every individual who has any ability to control your own HVAC system, you basically buy a MERV 13 or better filter. I mean, I basically just went to Home Depot and got the best filter system they had. They have this weird other thing that kind of matches. But the cost difference between a crappy filter and the best filter is like three bucks versus 11 bucks if you buy them in bulk. It's a tiny marginal difference. And with the higher end filters, you do have to change them more often because they can get a bunch more junk sucked into them that can mess up the system. So just you're basically paying 40 bucks a year to get the really good filters, change them out four times, and the filter gets the crap before it gets into your lungs and your bloodstream. That's the obvious thing that everyone should do personally. And we should find ways of incentivizing everyone to do that in larger rooms that they're responsible for, which we'll get to later. And then after you've done that, then you can start to move into in-room portable. They call We call them portable HEPA filter units because that's how they're branded. But really, the quality of the filter doesn't matter as much as how much air you're passing through the filter. Passing a lot more air through a MERV 13 filter will do a lot more good for you than passing a little bit of air through a HEPA filter. That's why those Corsi Rosenthal boxes are a really good DIY project. Uh, You're probably familiar with them. Yeah, I do want to describe what they are. Yeah. So basically, you get a box fan, uh, and you make a box with them. So the fan is pointing upwards. So the fan is blowing the air upwards, and it's taking the air through four different filters, MERV 13 or better, that you put around it in a box. So you'll have it on the table or on the floor. Basically, think of a cube. The bottom of the cube is on the floor. The top of the cube is the box fan blowing upwards, and the sides of the cube are four different filters. You can get really fancy if you're, like, if, if you're a computer hobbyist and you have access to a bunch of computer uh, fans, the kind of thing that would cool off a desktop computer. Those are actually a little better than box fans in terms of quietness and efficiency because they're more optimized and better engineered. But of course, there's a higher capital cost there. And with those, you can have like a grid of four or six computer fans blowing upward and going through maybe just two filters if you want a smaller profile. Mm -hmm. So those those DIY filter units typically perform a lot better even than the commercial units. A lot of these commercial units, they're very quiet, but that's because they're hardly doing anything at all. Like, oh, they advertise, oh, we've got this nice HEPA filter, but they're hardly moving any air through it. What you look for is a high clean air delivery rate. And that's 
what you can get yourself by just using a good fan. Uh, obviously, noise starts to be an issue in some settings, but it's that that's what you do for safety. Germicidal UV really isn't quite there yet for individuals to start to buy. We're hoping that in the next few years it will be, but there's more research that's needed on safety and you don't want to use GUV in an area where there's not good filtration because the ultraviolet light, basically when it hits any kind of surface, it starts to generate indoor smog. There's a lot of other weird interactions, like terpenes are especially nasty. And so that, that GUV isn't quite there yet. Yeah, basically, personally, do it as much filters as you can and try to get that in other areas. Yeah, great. I should try saying that back. So we're talking about two methods, which are filtration on one hand and GUV on the other. That's um, germicidal light. On the filtration, what I'm imagining is just you are passing air with a fan through some kind of big filter and the filter is just some kind of foam type material where it has lots of holes which stop um, particles getting through, but let's say I get through, is that roughly right? Mostly, although with new filters, there's a bit of an electrostatic effect where the fiber is a bit charged electrostatically and that means the particles in the air are actually attracted to them. Mm -hmm. And that stops working after a couple months. So in addition to the filter getting clogged up, the electrostatic effect is fading away. Yep. But anything anything other than filtration is just bad news. Don't do it. Like there's going to be a bunch of crap out there. Uh, some of it, like there, there's a bunch of different things. But anything that freshens the air by like putting any odors or chemicals or trying to blast it with ozone, like no, that's all bad news. Like you're basically polluting the air more. It won't do anything about the particulate matter. There might be some effect on infections, but it's usually outweighed by the smog. So it's it's all about filtration. Okay. Um, air ionizers feel like a thing I've come across. No. Nope. Which probably fall into this category. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, Jose Jimenez is, uh, pro he's producing more conference papers and analyses of these kind of things. Like yep. all the ratios are just bad. Okay, that's useful to know. There's a few of them that actually cause more good than harm, but the amount of good that they're doing is a lot less value for dollar than just running things through a filter. Yep. And with filtration, how quickly do you run up on diminishing returns with more and more filters? So you don't get diminishing returns in terms of air changes per hour. Air changes per hour, clean air delivery rate will basically increase exponentially. The model that we use for predicting infection rate, the Wells-Riley model, which has some problems, but it's it's mostly okay. Basically, every time you double the air changes per hour, you're cutting your infection rate in half. Mm -hmm. So in an absolute term of your infection risk, you basically got a decaying exponential kind of curve. Mm -hmm. So as you're moving along that, you have less absolute infection risk per each one that you spend. But the time at which it starts to not be economical for most settings, it's like 10 to 15 air changes per hour are still sensible to invest more in. Okay. So really the, the limit is going to be based on the noise of the units. Yep. Uh, basically add as many units as you can, uh, quiet units until they make so much noise that the use of the space is compromised. Got it. And I'm just imagining, let's say, a, a bedroom or a living room and maybe it has 
a little portable HEPA filter in the corner. Mm. Um, does a ballpark number come to mind for what would be the, the um, what was it, air changes per hour? Air changes per hour, ACH. Yeah, those are, it's not the best one, but it's one that people are often familiar with. Uh, what you what you actually want to aim for is more of a liters per second per person kind of calculation. Okay. But like 20 or 30 liters per second per person is, again, that's, that should be like a bare minimum kind of situation. Mm. But in general, given the, again, you, I, I recommend the do-it-yourself things rather than the commercial ones. But especially during respiratory virus season, uh, three, uh, two or three in a bedroom would be reasonable. But it's more important, of course, to put them in places where lots of people are gathered. Mm-hmm. So if it's just your private room and nobody else is in there, yeah, you might have a little bit of particulate matter. Uh, but that's not the real risk compared to getting a disease from someone else, either COVID or flu, which is going to be with us for a while. So it's, it would be much better to have, you know, five or six air cleaners scattered around whenever you're hosting people for dinner in your living room or dining room, et cetera, to really clean the places where people are densely gathered. So don't think about it on a per room basis. Think about it on a per person basis. Okay. And having one of those air filters for every, okay, this is just kind of, this is not official engineering guideline, but I don't think this number is actually there. Engineers always make things really complicated, but as a super, as a rule of thumb, if you're thinking about a basic thing that you buy off the shelf or a Corsi box, you basically want one of those for every two to four people that you've got in the gathering. Okay, nice. Yeah, I guess a heuristic here is that you can just keep halving the infection rate by doubling the amount of filtration in a room. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it's not like, let's say, a fire alarm, where once you have one fire alarm, you've checked off the fire alarm box, right? Yeah, exactly. It's definitely a, you want a gears level, more power kind of situation. More filtration is better. Most places have extremely low amounts you should be thinking in terms of five to 10 air changes per hour, 15 to 30 liters per second per person. Okay, great. And then you also mentioned germicidal light. I guess many people have heard of this. This is Mm -hmm. light which uh, sterilizes the air. Am I right in thinking this helps with pathogens, so it kills germs, but doesn't necessarily help with uh, particulate matter? Exactly. They actually make the particulate matter situation worse. So it's the kind of thing that you only want to pull out in an ex- well, not an extreme pandemic scenario, like basic respiratory virus season. As long as you don't have terpenes or other chemical sources in the room, uh, they're going to be doing more good than harm, especially for a mass gathering kind of event. Mm-hmm. But it's it has not gotten to the point where there's actually a reasonable consumer product that is being sold that we can recommend. There's a lot of things that you might find on Amazon, like the the blue lights and other stuff. Uh, but people that we trust say like, yeah, don't really go there yet. Okay. So it's, it's really not, there's not a consumer product. Like there's some, there's things that you can rent if you're doing a thing and if you have the right connections, but unfortunately there's not yet any consumer product that we can actually recommend for GUV. We hope that'll change in a few years. So it's, it's not a thing now. Okay. And just to be clear, I take it we are implicitly talking about far UVC, right? Which is yeah. a particular narrow bit of the UV spectrum. Yeah, UV t- 222 is the number that's usually thrown around. 
there's upper room UV, which is you can't let that shine on someone individually, but it's quite useful. So if you are doing an HVAC renovation, there is existing products that blast the air going through your ducts with UV light. That is a safe, established technology. Mm -hmm. So it's... Yeah, that, that, is, that is probably something that I would recommend, especially if you're going to be having a lot of gatherings in your house. You can have the in-duct UV, which is, you know, just in the box. It sterilizes the air going through. That's, that's yeah, that has a good ratio of benefits to cost. There's stands and stuff that you can have on the walls that are just mounted upwards. Um, most of our target audience would probably be able to follow the advice of, you know, don't let it shine in anybody's eyes. Don't have a reflective surface on the ceiling that can bounce into someone's eyes. Mm-hmm. So the upper room UV, that's the 240 or something or 50 something. I forget the number. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, also a relatively established technology. Uh, and if you're, that's something that you can do if you have a mass gathering, mm-hmm. uh, shine that up. But the, the super safe, like, UV 222, that's the one that's not ready yet. Got it. So upper room UV, it's established. It's relatively cheap, certainly cheaper than fire UVC. Um, you can put that in air ducts, but you can't just shine it like a light on a down on people in a room. And the reason is this can give you cancer, I guess. You can't really look at it. It'll yeah. damage your eye cells and damage your skin cells and so on. Fire UVC has the benefits of sterilizing pathogens, which upper room UVC has but appears not to have these damaging properties as well. So you could, once it's cheap and doesn't produce this smog quite as much, you could just shine it on people, put them in rooms. Um, Currently, however, very expensive, not widely available. Um, And it has this smog issue, which you mentioned. Do you want to say more about that? Yeah. When When you shine the UV onto anything, there's what's called secondary chemistry in the room of what does the, whenever UV light hits something, you know, think of yellowing or other effects or sunburn, like any substance will change when hit by UV light that will often release other chemicals. That's relatively understudied. Uh, I know, like, I'm not even sure what products would have terpenes in them. I just know like that's one of the things that causes a lot of smog and problems. So I couldn't tell you like, what's a particular brand name or plastic or thing, because the research is still very young. But we would need to know basically what things you should not have in the room when you're shining this far UV light. And we don't have that list yet. Okay, so on far UVC, it sounds like the priority there is just getting it cheaper, which sounds like doing more R&D. Is that right? Yeah, they're basically, within the next few years, they should basically have LEDs that produce them in the right wavelength. Right now they don't, or they're very expensive, but that's ongoing. Okay, and then it sounds like we also need to just know more. Um, So that sounds like doing studies to rule out potential harms to humans, uh, and also figuring out the effectiveness. So doing trials at increasing scales. Is that right? There have been a lot of rooms like EPA and NIST have big test chambers where they're set up like a room and they can do all kinds of different things. So it's been proven pretty conclusively that UV lights will actually sterilize a lot of area. So we know like to within a reasonable amount of confidence interval how much good you're doing. Mm -hmm. And 
in those test chambers, we have to a much larger confidence interval how much smog is being generated. And it's the kind of thing where if you have decent ventilation and you have either vulnerable populations or uh, a lot of virus risk, then it definitely is going to do more good than harm once we once the technology gets rolled out. But we need to have more practical advice on yeah, what are the interactions? Because it's you're looking at one or two orders of magnitude difference in smog generation based on what other chemicals are in the room when you're shining this far UV light. Mm-hmm. So we need to have a better study of like what are the things that you don't want to mix with it and have a simple list of make sure that you don't have these materials or these fabrics or these chemicals or other things in the room when you're shining the light. And we don't have that advice ready to go, which means the smog generation changes by a couple orders of magnitude and at the high end cancels out the health benefits. Got it. Yeah, maybe one question here is if you just had a bunch of money to spend on trials and studies, uh, what would you prioritize? The interaction effects. The most important thing is to know the second, uh, the technical term is the secondary indoor chemistry, uh, the chemistry of what happens when different materials are blasted by the thing and how that affects smog and health generation. Great. Okay. So we have talked so far about two ways to improve indoor air quality. They are filtration and UV light, especially far UVC light. Filtration we can do right now. Far UVC has a way to go on the getting it cheaper side, but it could be close. Um, Is there anything else? One thing that occurs to me is ventilation like if it's nice out i could just crack open a window or use some ventilation system and then it might improve the air indoors as well is that comparably effective to those other methods well ventilation without filtration doesn't do a whole lot okay you basically need to be passing the air over chemicals indoor and outdoor have different sources and different sinks of different kind of pollution Unless you are doing a lot of burning of candles or indoor um, flame sources or you're cooking something that burns, indoor is not really a source of the fine particulate matter. Like, yeah, if you burn something on the stove, your PM is going to spike up. But most of the time, the smog sources are actually higher outdoors than they are indoors. And that's especially true if we got wildfires like we saw recently or if you live in a city or near a big highway. The stuff outside is generating the particulate matter in the smog and your house is actually a sink. It sucks into the carpet, it sucks into the wallpaper so that it goes down. So if you open a window without filtration and the outside levels of smog are high, you're actually letting in more bad stuff. And the re- you're letting out some bad stuff. There's some stuff in your house that is a source of some foul smelling things, some like chemicals, but those are the stuff that doesn't kill you as much. So yeah, I like opening my window if it's a clean air day, like if there's no kind of ozone or smog alert, sure, you just, you're clearing out more air, it feels nicer, uh, the stuff in inside your house doesn't go away, you get to hear the birds singing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But if there's any kind of ozone or particulate warning outside, you need to be closing it up and running your HVAC through filters. Uh-huh. All right, so there are things that individuals can do right now to improve their air. So, you know, I could go out and buy some more of these Corsi Rosenthal boxes, for instance. 
But what about on the national level? So if we took a country like the US, for instance, um, what are the measures that seem most promising here? Is it new regulations, new standards or something? And uh, yeah, what are people working on? We've actually been doing this for about a year and I can tell you what we've been doing. So at a very high level, when you're thinking about how do I change a country, you think about the legal and cultural and policy scenario. So in the United States, we have a federal system and building codes are very much a local issue. Mm -hmm. And especially given the current political environment, there's not much that's going to happen at the federal level that will actually have teeth. There's a couple of things that might happen, like the Airborne Act that Representative Bayer has introduced. We'll give some tax credits for doing stuff. So that's always possible and we're hopeful. But the real action has to be at the state and local level in terms of building codes. So for that reason, at the Center for Health Security, we basically have produced a model state law that we got a committee of like some of the 20 top names in the indoor air community. We hired some lawyers who are skilled at drafting model state legislation, a guy who worked on the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act. And we're basically saying, what is a law that states could pass that would actually be a long-term serious solution to this problem that would exist well in the current legal and regulatory environment in terms of being constitutional, being legal, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we basically put a lot of work into producing this model law. that's like, okay, this is what we think would produce good outcomes. And it's, and it's important to think about the difference between a law and a regulation. The regulation is the thing that says, Here's how many liters per second per person you have to have. Here's what the filters have to look like. Here's the technical details of implementation. Our model state law doesn't give those numbers. It's basically the enabling statute that says the state is going to set up a committee of people who will then write the regulations. And then the there's this legal structure of enforcement such that if anybody complains that any resident of a building complains that the air is making them sick, mm. then that triggers an inspection. And if the building mm. is found to not meet the standards, then you have this legal structure of, okay, you're now actually ordered to make improvements so people aren't getting sick anymore. Okay, got it. And then the work begins of, all right, we actually have to find a state to lobby them to pass this thing or some version of it and make it pass through the political process. Okay, that sounds uh, exciting. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty naive about just how building regulations work in general, let alone in the US specifically. So presumably there's a bunch of existing regulations and laws state by state. And presumably they say things about, I don't know, like you can't use certain toxic chemicals in your building materials. You need a certain standard of water supply or whatever. How are those regulations maintained? Like I'm imagining that there needs to be some kind of monitoring system and people kind of suing? Is that the main mechanism by which it gets enforced? Like, yeah, what's going on? Short answer, it's not being maintained very well. It's, as one of my colleagues said, to call it a patchwork would be an insult to patchworks. <laughs> There's a lot of laws about particular contaminants, like a lot of laws, state laws will talk about radon in the building code, like you have to have these particular radon mitigation measures. And some will have laws about schools or government buildings. But there's never any kind of comprehensive law that would protect indoor air quality for all public buildings. And it's it's all based on local laws and politics and a constant issue that you have 
in just about any political system ever, is a law is set up, but unless there's some constant enforcement mechanism, it just kind of gets fading away. Mm. So we have this situation where there's a lot of laws on new buildings and it gets more and more strict all the time, sometimes much more strict than I think a cost-benefit analysis would say. Like in DC now, like new apartment buildings are having to be like net zero passive house, just meet extremely high standards. Yeah. But trying to regulate via approval of new buildings can backfire because you're making new housing construction so expensive, people are getting stuck in the old things. And aside from major renovations, there's basically nothing in terms of how are we regulating the air quality or the contents of older buildings. Okay. Um, but okay, maybe we could just take water quality as an example. Let's say I'm a tenant and I notice the water quality is full short on one of these regulations. Like, what do I do? What, what's the process from that point to the water actually gets better and these regulations do something, you know? I don't actually know the details of that. Of, I mean, most of my knowledge of this is like, okay, what happened in Flint? And like, basically nothing happened until it became a national uh, issue. I probably should know those details, but sorry, I don't. Presumably there is an understanding that when you are building a new building or installing a new uh, filtration system or some new uh, plumbing, that such and such laws exist and you have some reason to uh, stick to them. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely regulations on what pipe material you use in your building. Yeah. Uh, but most of the water quality issues don't come from the last little bit of the building pipes, mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. think. Uh, again, I'm not an expert on this. I think most water quality issues come from the actual water distribution, the river, the pipes, etc. And if if something is happening, if pipes in your building are causing the problem, first of all, you have to test, like test the water coming into the building, test the water coming out of the tap to actually prove that the pipes in the building are causing the contamination. Mm -hmm. And then it would be a building inspector kind of issue. But the rule generally it applies to when the building is doing construction or major renovation, they say, are, are you using the proper material in your pipes? Are you following the building codes? And if if something is built according to a modern building code using modern materials, it's probably going to be very good for a very long time, mm -hmm. uh, at least in the water system. The problem with the HVAC system is it's a lot easier for those to get messed up and their performance doesn't match the uh, building code, how it was designed. I guess in some sense, air quality is much less centralized, like you're not hooked into some central air supply, like each building needs to meet all the standards individually. Exactly. Um, Each building has to do its own filtration. You're not getting filtered. We're not getting filtered air from a big pipe on tap. Yeah, if only. Um, can you say more about the model state, um, model state law work sure. you're doing? And um, yeah, maybe I, I realize it's not released yet. But if you could say some things about what it says, that'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely give an overview of what it does. Hmm. Um, so, first of all. It's basically telling the state to set up an advisory panel and assign some state agency to be in charge of this thing. Mm. Saying, all right, specifically delegating res legal responsibility. So the correct state agency has regulatory authority and they set up an advisory council of building owners, uh, industrial hygienists, researchers, et cetera, who will agree on the standards. And we don't say this in the law, but we definitely would encourage them to basically follow existing 
standards like ASHRAE 62.1 or 241. And a lot of people have concerns about the Model State Act because they're saying you're not you're not instituting a national standard. Every state could do their own thing. Like, how do you know they're going to do something reasonable? And the answer is we don't. That's just what it's like living in a federal system. Like it is. Yep. There's nothing stopping a state or locality from having a completely bizarre building code. But we find that they're generally mostly well aligned. Um, there's obviously little quirks in different areas, and that's just kind of inescapable. But we're pretty sure that. Like we're, we're actually going to issue you know, recommendations for what kind of regulation we would put out, but it definitely has to be tailored to local state needs. Like each state is going to have it be in a different climate zone. Some of them will have like very different installed bases of how often you have gas stoves versus electric kind of stuff. So we, we do have to have built into it. Yeah, the state's going to do their own thing. Mm-hmm. So the state has this process of setting up their regulations, doing public ed- advocacy and outreach. And that generates relatively small costs. I mean, it's not that expensive to hire a few FTEs to be in charge of things. Mm-hmm. The two main things that the state does that are the main requirements on building owners is, number one, you have to monitor at certain frequencies. It doesn't have to be constant real-time monitoring, but that tech is getting pretty cheap, so we would hope they would do it. You basically have to monitor the levels of pollutants and contaminants in your building, you have to post them on site and also upload them to a state database. So the first thing we're doing is you just got, you have to measure and record what's going on. And we don't tell them exactly what to measure in the law, but the regulation would say, okay, you're measuring particulate matter. You're probably going to measure CO2, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Just let people know what's going on because the problem aside from thermal comfort or humidity, air quality, at most levels is completely invisible to people. You don't know what you're breathing unless it gets super bad. And just letting people know what they're getting, a consumer choice is the first thing. Mm-hmm. And these, the second one, which uh, you could do either a couple years later, or it could be optional, although we really encourage people to do it, is to basically set up an OSHA-like complaint system we're not requiring annual inspections. We're not requiring, like some state laws, like Maryland did something that would have required an annual building envelope inspection. And that's just, that's very expensive for not as much uh, value. Mm-hmm. So we're not requiring annual inspections. It's optional. If you get annual inspections and you pass them, the state will look more favorably if a complaint happens. But that's purely voluntary. The mandatory thing is if someone, if a resident or occupant of your building, which is generally going to be people who work there. Uh, if someone who works in the building issues a goes to the state agency and issues a complaint about the air quality, and that's the thing that the state the act requires states to set up this complaint process. So it has to be let people know that they can complain about this thing. Set up a website where people can enter a form and say, "Hey, the air where I work is crap, and I think it made me sick. Here's my doctor's note, etc." The state will then follow up on these complaints and will then do an investigation based on those complaints. And if the investigation finds that, yeah, the air in here is crap and it's plausible that it caused this person to get sick, then you order remedial action. So, okay, this model law calls for monitoring in some way. I'm imagining that means that buildings would have monitoring equipment and then the data from them would go to a database. Would that be public? Yes, uh, it should be. It's publicly that that is part of it. The state must make the data publicly available. Okay, cool. 
I know that you also looked at an existing Senate bill, uh, I think in Connecticut, which was for school air quality. Yes. Uh, curious what that said and also what happened to it? Did it go through? Honestly, I don't know. I haven't heard anything. Uh, like a lot of these things don't make it because there's some kind of opposition or it's hard to get things done. Connecticut is in that situation where in the past they hadn't thought they needed air conditioners in their schools. So I come from North Carolina. Like I was quite old before I realized that anybody ever went to a school that didn't have an air conditioner. I'm like, <laughs> how does that even work? Like our entire school calendar in North Carolina is shifted forward. Like we go to school starting in early August, but and the kids don't mind it because everything outside is so miserable and so wretched, you can't do anything. So like we are perfectly happy to go into an air conditioned school system for the month of August and just, okay, that that's fine. It works great. And then we get out of school a lot earlier. So like the fact that a school wouldn't have air conditioning just boggles me. It's like if poor countries in rural North Carolina and Alabama can have decent air conditioning systems in their schools, like why can't uh, richer states? But somehow like they just never had it in the past. And like people are always so attached to their existing things. Like well, we never had air conditioning in the past and it seems like a horrible imposition to tell us to order it. And that just makes no sense to me, whatever. But definitely with global warming, Connecticut is now in a situation where if you could get away without school AC in the past, you definitely can't now. There's heat waves, it's screwing with kids, it's messing up their test scores. So they're saying, all right, you got to have decent HVAC systems in here and you have to actually shut down school if it's too hot, if you don't have the HVAC system. So the effect on test scores, the effect on health, you know, there, there's huge benefits to putting proper HVAC systems in schools. But the problem is the cost is all up front and the cost is a money cost. And the benefits are, you know, people just aren't getting sick 20 years in the future. So it's often hard politically to convince people to pay upfront money costs for you know, future life and health gains. Yeah. OK, that sounds like a fairly sensible piece of legislation. For what it's worth, I think the state is similar in the UK. Certainly most slash nearly all homes just have no AC, so the country will just like plunge into a state of overheating for like a week or two every year. But there's this mm. status quo bias, right, where people just don't, yeah, <laughs> don't read much into it. I think one thing that might change is that there might be some um, push towards heat pumps as a heating solution. And one nice feature they have is that you can reverse them. Yeah, yeah. I also North Carolina is one of the places with high heat pumps. So again, I was a lot older before I realized like, wait, how can anybody think that heat pump is a modern technology? Like I've had heat pumps in my house since, you know, I was a baby. Okay. Now it's like sci-fi in the UK. That's just what I'm used to. It's like, right. of course, all of the schools have heat pumps in them. Why wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you're ahead of the curve in that, in that sense. So you're talking about the State Model Act for indirect quality. And then whilst you were talking about it, you mentioned a standard, it's ASHRAE standard, which you know the state could follow. So ASHRAE, this is like a kind of trade association of like air people? Yes, it stands for, uh, well, it used to stand for the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration and Air Conditioning Engineers. Now it just means ASHRAE because they're going international and they're trying to expand beyond America. But yeah, it's the trade association for HVAC engineers. They are the standards body along with ANSI that produces like there's hundreds of them of very technical things mm. for all kinds of design and requirements. But the main 
uh, standard 62.1 tells you what are the required airflow rates of outside air that you have to have in every kind of building. Mm-hmm. And it also it has specified minimum filtration stuff. And the new standard, like, so 62.1 is already incorporated by reference into a lot of state building codes. So in most places, any new building has to satisfy or comply with 62.1. But of course, existing building stock doesn't get, like there's no requirement in state laws that say older buildings have to comply with it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Right. So ASHRAE recently passed a new standard, standard 241 for control of infectious aerosols. They were basically requested to do that by uh, the Biden administration. They got it done very quickly in uh, like only six months from start to finish, which is super fast for a, for a standard. And it was me. I was the only economist, the only public health, one of the few public health people in a room with a bunch of engineers. So there was a lot of figuring out how to work with each other, a bit of culture stuff. But we're very, we got things working well. We started collaborating on this giant uh, spreadsheet uh, that was using the Wells-Riley model to do a proper Monte Carlo probabilistic simulation of the risk of various spaces based on increases in airflow rates. Mm. So I was on what was the risk assessment team, which is basically deciding what the airflow rates are going to be in the infection risk mitigation mode. Mm. So what ASHRAE Standard 241 does is saying, at certain times, you must have the capacity to run your building in infection risk mitigation mode. And we're not, we, we've left it kind of vague as to when exactly it gets turned on. I, and I think other people on the committee want the infection risk mitigation mode to turn on every time there's the winter respiratory virus season, what we used to call flu season from December to March in the Northern hemisphere. So whenever there's an enhanced risk of respiratory virus transmission, you are running at these higher levels and it doesn't have to be outside air. It just has to be uh, filtered air delivered at a higher rate to reduce the risk of infection. Yep. And we set the standards for that. Nobody has adopted it yet, but we're hoping that people will. And we would definitely hope that if a state adopts the Model State Act for Indoor Air Quality, they would start to use ASHRAE Standard 241 as part of that and say, here's the procedure for having higher filtration rates when people are at higher risk of viruses to protect them. Okay, great. And I'll just try saying some of that back to make sure I'm getting clear on how these things fit together. So Good. Um, state legislation sits at a higher level than standards in the sense that it's presumably not mentioning a bunch of numbers about airflow rates and um, air changes or whatever. It's just saying, let's set up a body and here's how all these different agencies and bodies are going to fit together. Um, standards do specify concrete requirements. Like they're really, you can just plug them in and they'll tell you what to do. Okay, a bit more detail. So you're right, you have the legislation, which is the thing that's passed by the state legislature. And then you have regulation. The regulation has the force of law Mm -hmm. and that's done by the regulatory body. A standard is privately produced. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. a standard is only voluntary. It only becomes an industry standard. However, regulations often choose to incorporate standards by reference. Okay. So the legislation is the law. The regulation is done by bureaucrats with force of law, 
Yep. And often the regulation adopts a standard which is often done by a private entity. Okay, great, thanks. And in this case, so ASHRAE is the body that's coming up with this standard, two for one. Um, ASHRAE is like a trade association. It's not a government body. Yes. But the standards it, produce, it produces are being referenced in regulations backed by law. Yes. That's how it has teeth, um, yes. or at least one way it has teeth. Okay, great. Um, and then the hope is that that happens with with two four one. So now you have this kind of detailed standard, which has been produced by people thinking hard about what actually needs to be in this standard. That's like a valuable off the shelf um, product, for want of a better word, you, that you can now be referenced in a bunch of like different legislations. That's the idea. Exactly. The entire thrust of my work for the past year or more at the Center for Health Security has been to help produce these off-the-shelf solutions for political change. Mm -hmm. So we can now, we can find our allies and go to a state legislature and say, look, here's the model law. If you want to do something about indoor air quality and you have the political coalition for it, this is the best thing to do. Slight tweaks for your state, use this model law, mm -hmm. plug that in, pass that, and then, uh, that will tell regulators what to do. And we've got this off the shelf solution from ASHRAE that says this is a good standard that you can adopt. And this is what you should encourage people to do. Okay, great. Um, and then you said something about this, but it sounds like um, getting state legislation is more promising than like federal stuff or getting like countrywide regulatory bodies to implement standards like maybe the epa could do this i don't know how does that how does that work well currently the epa has no authority over indoor air i mean I, and i think that's baked into the statute it would require a literal act of congress for epa to have authority over indoor air and in the u.s federal system uh, building codes have always been a state and local kind of matter basically by in, in theory anything that doesn't uh involve interstate commerce should only be done at the state and local level yep and of course, the federal government has various reasons to claim uh, jurisdictional things that are kind of in this gray, fuzzy area of maybe it's interstate commerce or not. But it would be a stretch to claim that the building code for a particular building actually, you know, is under interstate commerce or is actually constitutionally allowed for the federal government to do anyway. I mean, you you could find ways of doing it if the entire country was behind you, but in the current political environment, it it may not survive a court challenge. Like makes sense. So it basically has to be done at the local level mm. uh, because in our federal system, they're the ones with the legal authority to do this kind of building. Yep, got it. So um, I might get some details wrong here, but I understand that Center for Health Security um, hosted a meeting last year. And this is on the national strategy for improving yes. indoor air quality. Yeah, do you want to say what that what that was and if anything came out of it? Okay, so basically it was getting together a lot of experts in the field. Uh, essentially, it was some. It was a kind of a cross between a research conference and a planning thing. Like we didn't actually have poster presentations, but there were a lot of chat with people, talk about their work, get to know people. And it was really kind of setting the stage for producing the National Advisory Council and deciding, like talking with people as a group and saying, okay, here's what we know. Here's what we've been studying. Here's what we figured out. We saw presentations from a lot of different people and deciding, all right, 
now that we've shared this knowledge and information, what's the next step forward? And that was when we kind of decided, yeah, yeah, we're, we can do this model law project. A lot of people who attended the conference then became the technical advisors for the model law. So you can think of it as the kickoff con- meeting or academic conference that got this model law thing going okay. on. Great, got it. Um, all right, nice. So now I'm imagining, like, just suppose this was successful. So the model law turns into actual law uh, in a bunch of states. This translates into, like, hopefully health outcomes, just fewer people dying from particulates, also from pathogens, like fewer people are getting the flu, getting pneumonia, getting endemic COVID. Um, One that we've talked about less, I notice, is um, pandemics. Um, Yeah, curious what you can say about like, if let's just say in a in a big country like the US, it really gets its act together on indoor air. Um, what does that do to the risk of a pandemic emerging from that country? It does lower it pretty substantially, uh, but it's very much a probabilistic thing. So with an endemic thing, like if you could with really with reasonable improvements to indoor air quality, reduce the annual risk by something like 25%. So we're hopeful that if everybody did this, then like the number of people getting the flu or COVID each year would reduce by you know, something 10 to 40%. Again, the confidence intervals are pretty big here, but that's the kind of numbers we're looking at. So it's with a new pandemic, you basically have something starting off as being an outbreak and Will it completely blow up beyond our ability to contain, or will it be something like the original SARS where we could actually control it? So if the reproduction rate is extremely high, then the air quality improvements that we're talking about really aren't going to change that much. Uh, it could slow it down a little bit. Maybe a super spreader event doesn't have as many people. Uh, where it's conversely, if the reproduction rate was very close to one, then this thing would stop it. But basically, it's it's hard to know exactly how to model it. But to a first approximation, you could definitely do worse than saying it could reduce the chances of a respiratory virus pandemic by about that 25%. Okay. Okay. Awesome. And yeah, I guess it sounds like that's just quite sensitive. Like you need to know the distribution of like pandemic potential mm-hmm. pathogens in the future. Um, one thing I'm getting from that is that if you're like especially pessimistic about engineered pathogens, engineered to be like especially um, for like R not to be especially high, yeah. it's going to be less effective than this kind of like sweet spot around one where it's just like pushing it below, going exponential. Um, so nat- natural pandemics, it seems like, seems good for. Well, even for engineered stuff, so. I don't think most people appreciate the variability or the power law distribution you have of super spreader events. Like, if most people who catch COVID, I think, actually catch it from the super spreader events, Mm -hmm. it's a pretty big deal. So even even with a high R naught, it's still the the super spreader events that really drive a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So you're you're flattening, even if you don't stop a pandemic, you're still flattening the curve a substantial amount. So good indoor air quality. And again, 
things are different with different diseases. But the kind of indoor air quality improvements that we're talking about can flatten the curve about as much as masking. Okay. Masking in a real world situation where a lot of people aren't doing it properly, et cetera. Like, yeah, if, if things are done exactly right, masking is more cost effective and more effective overall at flattening the curve than indoor air quality improvements. But in the real world, especially among a population that isn't 100% cooperative, indoor air quality is at least as good, possibly better than a mask mandate at slowing down the spread of things or even stopping them from spreading. So if you think that masking is a good idea for any situation, indoor air quality improvements are an even better idea because they're an engineering control that doesn't require uh, everybody to comply Mm -hmm. and constantly be doing things. So it's definitely valuable in a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. A bit of a background in terms of the intentional attack. When I was at the Food and Drug Administration, I was on the team that did the intentional adulteration of food rule. So I actually have some experience with this kind of biodefense and thinking through adversarial attacks. Uh, Very briefly, the Food Safety Modernization Act was passed in 2011. Congress ordered FDA to pass a bunch of new rules. And one of them was pass a rule telling food production lines how to harden their production facilities against being used as a vector for a terror attack. Mm. So in every defense model is like making things difficult for the attacker has advantages. Think of it as like building an egg, no fence, no, no defense is 100% secure. But the more you stack layered layers of defense, just the harder it is to get past all of them. So it is a much, not, well, it is, it is a harder problem for someone to design a bioterror attack against a country that has good IAQ than less good IAQ. Mm-hmm. Like you have to do extra work to make sure it happens. And any extra barrier or difficulty that you add for your attacker has real gains. Uh, when you're thinking in this kind of adversarial situation. Yeah, got it. And so, I mean, taking masking, for instance, and improving IAQ, these are not like two alternatives. Presumably the benefits more or less compound. You just have like two layers rather than one. Um, They're not entirely uncorrelated, but... Exactly, yeah. Especially if there's a new pandemic or a bioterror attack, you want them both. One of the other things that I'm doing at the center is actually next-gen respirators. We're Mm -hmm. trying to convince people, especially we're trying to get into hospitals to have PAPR kind of things. Uh It's very briefly, you can buy yourself like as a consumer right now for about 1400 bucks, buy a really cool welding helmet. That's like, it's welding protective equipment, like I mean, it's not going to be as good as a bike helmet, but it's that same kind of thing. It's like you basically get your kind of Darth Vader helmet that will protect you against shock and impact and has a welding visor. And it has integrated into it a full papper that's like the same kind of protection against viruses that the, you know, medical people, those giant hoods have. Yeah. Papper stands for powered air purifying respirator. It's, there's the filter inside the helmet, and it's got battery packs and fans, and it just sucks the air in through the filters and gives it in uh, to you. And we're basically trying to convince hospitals that they should spend as much money to protect their workers as welding shops do. Like, again, it's back to the status quo bias or a cultural thing. Every Bubba redneck welding shop in the country knows that you're just going to spend 
a couple thousand bucks on proper PPE for every worker. That's just what you do in that situation and you're a hazard. But hospitals will not spend a trivial amount of money to buy similar protection for doctors and nurses and the people keeping us alive in a pandemic. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that's kind of wild. You can buy Pappers. Hospitals should buy Pappers. Uh, They work. They're cheap and getting cheaper all the time. Yeah. And speaking of like especially bad pandemics, um, it strikes me that that having a stockpile of very good PPE just is going to be extremely useful. Like you can just keep a a country running with essential workers wearing these things. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that we're trying to get in the strategic national stockpile. Of course, there's other competing priorities, and they're definitely in a better shape than they were uh, pre-COVID. But it's given the other things that could be researched, like. I think they wound up not doing Pappers, but when you consider the alternate uses of their money, like stepping up um, platform technologies that allow you to rapidly roll out a vaccine for a new kind of thing, like I'm actually sympathetic to be like, yeah, with new biomedical innovation, there's actually better value for the money than stockpiling these things mm-hmm. because like almost anybody can stockpile Pappers. You don't need the government to make that happen. But yep. encouraging new kinds of biomedical innovation could be even more protective. Yep. Okay. That's reasonable. So these like Papa, um, I don't know what do you call them, like helmets or something. Yeah. It's Pepper not like helmets. 1500 roughly. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming it's like sl- somewhat niche as a market. Can you imagine it's getting much cheaper if like people are trying to manufacture 10 times as many for a country because suddenly like it's not just welders but it's it's like essential workers in in hospitals and stuff yeah i'm not an expert on this but we think that getting it down to four or five hundred bucks is reasonable and achievable and even in the short run if production scaled up even more you might get it down to a bit cheaper than that but probably not much cheaper than 300 bucks still seems like a fairly good deal for just like keeping an extra essential worker so you what to the FDA for uh, nearly a decade? Is that correct? Seven years. Yeah. Seven years. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I kind of have lots of vague questions. One is something like there is a bunch of sentiment, at least you know, among the Twitter accounts I follow, that the FDA tends to overregulate and therefore cause these kinds of deaths by emission, um, by yes, I'm very familiar with the invisible graveyard arguments. Right, right. So that, that that kind of meme that the the FDA just almost always overregulates is that roughly correct? Because I guess we've been talking about a sense in which there's as, as a whole for useful regulation around air quality. So is there like a kind of more nuanced story about <laughs> what the FDA gets right and gets wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can basically give you the, uh, I, I can guide you through several layers of the galaxy brain meme <laughs> and go on with. So Great. let's do it. If you are not exposed to this EA kind of thing, if you're just an ordinary person, like middle of the road, like doesn't know much about politics, yes, the thing that you should know is the government regulating things too much does have costs, it harms innovation. And in general, there's a constant dynamic everywhere in the world where if something goes bad, people call for the government to regulate it to make sure nothing like this ever happens again. And that process of regulation just makes it harder to do new things that help people out. 
We see this in housing. We see it in a lot of situations. In general, there's powerful public forces that encourage people in all kinds of contexts to go too much into precautionary principle, not enough uh, consideration of the costs of regulating things. Mm-hmm. That's just a standard thing we see everywhere. Now, once you have that understanding, the next thing you should ask about is how tractable is this problem? And that's where international comparisons are extremely useful. Like we know that the U.S. sucks at zoning laws because we have the examples of Japan and Singapore who are just doing obviously better. Like if the U.S. just adopted zoning laws like Japan, like that would be a huge win. We can just point to say, yes, we know our country is screwing up. Look at this country. They do better. Mm -hmm. With something like the FDA, there's no example of any country anywhere in the world that does the FDA's job obviously better than they do. If anything, the Europeans tend to be even more precautionary and even more hesitant to recommend new things. Uh, even other places like, like Japan, Singapore, the usual suspects, they basically have a system that's re- pretty much the same as FDA. Mm-hmm. So even if you think that there is something wrong with FDA that needs to be fixed, that tells you this is going to be a much harder problem. If you cannot point to any developed economy anywhere in the world that is doing obviously better, then, first of all, you should be a lot more skeptical that something bad is actually happening and you should be skeptical that you can fix it. Mm-hmm. Now, I definitely there are tweaks that I would like to make. Uh, I would like to encourage more things to be done using cost benefit analysis. And, you know, that, that's kind of, you know, my personal hobby horse. Of, and most people in EA would agree, like current FDA approval system, it isn't based on an actual monetize the benefits, monetize the side effects and risks and come up with a, well, what's the cost benefit ratio of this new medicine? It's all just this fuzzy, do we feel that this justifies that in a very uncertain way? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that if you could get them to do a more rigorous cost benefit calculation, that would be a huge improvement. And if you could have some kind of tiered approval, like Scott Alexander talked about in that blog post of, you know, assign one through five stars, I would actually recommend one through seven of like allow something to be legal after it's passed phase two clinical trials, but just kind of have this staggered innovation. So it's not all or one. So that could be good. Yeah. So maybe there's a couple of clarifications. I feel like I did a bad job or at least a quick job of explaining this kind of stage one in the galaxy brain of. Well, I guess the invisible graveyard is the, the word it gets given. Mm. Yeah, curious how you'd explain this invisible graveyard idea in your own words. Okay. So everyone is probably aware of new medicines that can do a lot of good for people. Uh, and I, without endorsing any one particular thing, it seems like some of these new weight loss drugs, for example, we're seeing very good results in clinical trials. Uh, we're reducing weight. We're reducing the risk of heart attacks and strokes. Like... The invisible graveyard argument is think of all of these medicines that are doing a huge amount of good for people. If the FDA was faster at approving the good ones, then they would be doing good years ahead of time. So you would have several years of these things saving people's lives. So there's the invisible graveyard is all of the people who are killed because the delay in approving the drug was such that like they died before the FDA approved the drug. Mm-hmm. And the idea is it's really not very salient that for a particular person who died for want, for lack of a drug which could have been approved earlier, 
it's not so salient that in some sense the regulatory agency which delayed that drug is responsible, counterfactually responsible for that death or that accelerated death. It's an omission rather than a commission. Well, you pointed at something that's very good. It's like the regulatory agency, you, you're, you're blaming the FDA for essentially not being perfect. And the invisible graveyard, and I, I, was, I tried to be very specific when I said this, of if they had only approved the good drugs mm-hmm. very fast, and there wasn't and holding everything else in the system the same. Mm-hmm. So here's where I'm going to get to the part that is going to sound more like it is more of a defense of the current system, yeah. which is before you had a regulated system, like look in countries where you don't have an FDA or look at dietary supplements, like dietary supplements are kind of unregulated and it's just kind of a nightmare. I, we don't seem to observe an improvement in science and technology. It's like something will become popular, it seems to work, and then it gets faded out. Some new, it's more driven by advertising and fads. Whereas the actual real drugs that FDA approves, you actually have proper scientific knowledge and standards. Like the system works in such a way that it teaches doctors what can be used and what can't be used. Mm. So when people talk about the invisible graveyard, they're assuming that you can get all of the benefits of this current system if it runs much more quickly. Yeah. And that's kind of an untested assumption. Again, you can't point to any other place in the world that is working like that. And I do think that there are improvements, but I don't consider it a certainty. Like it's definitely plausible to me that the only reason we get these drugs at all, well, we know the only reason you're going to get a very expensive drug is if there's really good evidence that it actually works. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Insurance companies, especially Medicare and Medicaid, and of course you're familiar with the NHS, mm-hmm. uh, deciding whether or not to do something. Like You need a big mountain of evidence to prove that this thing works before people are going to start paying money for it. Mm-hmm. And the FDA is part of the system by which we generate the proof that makes people willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And in that case, the FDA is responsible for creating the entire system of innovation and new drugs that happen anyway. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of pattern matches. Like a lot of people, I think by now are familiar with the arguments against naive communism. Mm-hmm. Like naive communism is, well, you've got all of this money. Why don't you just take it away from the rich people and give it to the poor people? And that way the money will be spread equally and like everybody will be so happy. And the obvious counter argument is if you you only have this money because the system of free markets and democracy and rule of law is what generates the wealth. The system that generates the wealth generates it in an inequitable way. And you you could certainly do the European social democracy to use some of it. But if you break the foundations of the entire system, you're left with nothing. You've destroyed the system that's producing all of the benefits. And it's certainly plausible to me that if you made too many changes to the FDA system, it would be kind of like communism and that the FDA is an essential part of the system that makes the drug development happen because it's the giant seal of approval that will make people pay the giant amounts of money for the drugs that makes the innovation happen. Yeah. So I would be very hesitant for massive changes to the system for exactly the same reason you should be very hesitant to support a communist revolution. Like you're, you're breaking the thing that actually delivers the goods because you think that it could be delivered perfectly 
but where's the proof for that? And so it sounds like your kind of all things considered take is, well, sure, there are like tweaks to something like the FDA, which might make it better. Um, but some kind of, you know, abolish this thing, all it does are harms. It's a kind of similar error to this invisible graveyard error where um, actually the harms are much more salient than the usefulness it's providing. Um, and then you mentioned maybe more of an emphasis on cost-benefit analysis in the FDA. Does that feel kind of tractable to you? Yeah, I think it does. And I think it's more of a cultural thing. Like EAs, most of whom are very young, don't realize how novel the entire concept of cost-benefit analysis is. Like there, there are older examples of it, but almost all of the old examples really suck because they're not actually measuring the benefits properly. And you still see remnants of this in a lot of government agencies. Cost-benefit analysis done badly is basically just accounting an accounting exercise in the service of an inhuman entity. It's only looking at the profitability to this inhuman thing, be it a corporation or a government, without considering the actual human costs and benefits. So a lot of times in the past, they would only look at like medical bills and lost productivity. There would be no valuation for people actually like being alive and healthy. Such so in, in the bad old days, if something killed a retired person without generating any medical costs, then there would just be no cost aside to that, that they would only measure, like they would consider the value of someone's life to only be their contribution to the economic engine. Yep. And it's only been in the past 20 or 30 years since like, the 80s and the 90s were the foundational research on actually properly valuing life and health, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And there's really, EAs kind of attach themselves to this and, oh yeah, that seems obviously correct. Why are you not doing it? But the entire culture of cost-benefit analysis as a thing that one automatically does just really doesn't exist outside economists and EAs. It's slowly starting to spread and you have the only way to make it spread is to show that it's actually a way, a thing of respecting humanity more mm -hmm. and that we're not doing the bad old cost inhuman cost benefit analysis that reduces people's lives to, you know, how much do you contribute to the machine? I, I don't know what your to patience or tolerance is for getting philosophical quickly, but I think if you're doing any kind of good cost-benefit analysis, it very quickly runs into philosophical questions of what do you value and why? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, like, yeah, in the past, people are running on deontology. The FDA does run on deontology. And a bureaucracy run on deontology is an amazingly good social invention. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. Bureaucracies are really incredibly valuable machines for mass-producing nice things in life. Mm -hmm. Like You can think of them as factories. And bureaucrats are these lies, these machines that are like on a factory assembly line. And in the COVID, like a lot of EAs have pointed out, you know, bureaucracies like the NIH or FDA do have obvious flaws. They're not able to adapt very quickly to changing environments, but that's because they're never really meant to. A bureaucracy is a factory for churning out reliable, good enough judgments and rules mm -hmm. and approvals. And this is an incredibly valuable social technology that we really didn't even have until the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. Before then, it was all just individuals making judgments. I don't know how familiar you are with the idea of why common law legal systems are better and historically uh, 
function better. Very briefly, the reason that we like a common law legal system is precedent and predictability are extremely important. People need to be in a system where a lawyer can look at the facts of the case and say, okay, given these facts, if the judge is following precedent like they should, this is how I predict the case will happen. Mm -hmm. That way, like you can go to arbitration and you don't actually have to go to the court because if you have a court that makes predictable outcomes and everybody knows what the outcomes are, then you can save yourself the expense of going to court and your lawyers hash it out and say, yeah, here's what's going to happen. Here's how you resolve the dispute and you just coordinate better on it. And that relies on precedent and predictability, which means that the individual initiative of the court has to be taken away. Like you can't, and in pretty much every other system ever, a judge has been like, you are a paragon of Confucian virtue. Well, you will do what is right in every case according to you know the rules of virtue. Nobody has any clue what you're going to do. It's a recipe for corruption. Like there's no predictability. You can't do commercial contracting. It just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So you gain a huge amount of value in society by constraining people and forcing them to follow precedent. And a bureaucracy kind of expands that out into a new area. Yeah. Right. Knowing what knowing what to do to make the FDA approve your drug. Yep. Yep. is really valuable because like that way everybody knows this is what you have to do. And as long as there's a reasonable correlation between what you have to do to get approval and actually generate good scientific knowledge, it works really well. Yeah, great. So when you have an engine that's specifically designed to be reliable and steady and predictable and do the same thing, it's always like that's not something that can or should change its mind quickly. And mm-hmm. people yep. who, yeah, they're complaining about, oh, you should have this, engine of predictability that also automatically does the right thing. Like, no, the bureaucracy being slow and stupid is an inevitable side effect of the bureaucracy being predict a predictable bedrock foundation upon which economic activity is built. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think of an analogy. Like, if you're a software engineer and you're building some software products, you want to build it out of parts, which are made out of parts and so on. Yes. And all of those parts need to be predictable. Like, if you have any element yes. of like, well, it's kind of, you know, kind of whimsical and fickle sometimes, and it'll, you know, just say something unpredictable. <laughs> That's just going to like percolate to the rest of the system. Um, so if you're trying to like build complex, big things that work together and don't stall, you might need to um, pay this cost of like sometimes having something which is slow or like overly rigid, but then you just realize that it's like more or less necessary. Um, exactly. I like this point. Yeah. So I just had some <laughs> questions unrelated to what we've been talking about. Um, I summoned on this blog post you'd written, and um, you mentioned that a bunch of, let's say, original-seeming thinkers, contemporary thinkers, seem to have been raised to like an unusual extent on old sci-fi books rather than newer fiction. At least they're kind of citing these books more. I'm curious why you think that is. Uh, okay, so this this is definitely a different. Um... I really like the rationalist uh, habit of putting epistemological status on the front of each different <laughs> essay. So yeah. this epistemological status of this is nothing like what I've been talking about in the past. I pretty much, um, well, when I started talking about the FDA, that's more of like how I'd fix things. But like most cost-benefit analysis area, people would agree. And the indoor air quality stuff is like just about any expert would agree. Um, yeah, this is going to get into a bit more... Uh, so other people in the EA community have said similar things, but 
right? People are socialized by narratives. Hmm. And that's an important part of how culture is created. And like throughout cultures, people are just going to copy cultural patterns. Like humans, I'm sure you've heard of, you've seen the experiments where orangutans are actually better than human children at solving logic puzzles. Like orangutans are better shape rotators than ch- uh, human children. No, they have better short-term visual memory. I didn't know that was Yeah, they'll just, they'll, they'll, like if you demonstrate an orangutan how to open a puzzle box and you throw in like irrelevant adjacent steps, they'll just ignore that and like do the pure okay, shape yeah, rotator yeah. thing and, like, like throw away the jump. Not doing the social imitation thing as much. Whereas humans will, will copy exactly like even the pointless ritualistic maneuvers. And that is why we rule the world and orangutans don't because humans deliberately followed an evolutionary strategy of being more like an ant and less like a monkey. Like we will copy, like humans are machines that copy behavior cultural and behavior norms like this that's like an anthropologist might say it differently but like that is the human killer app we have culture and other animals don't so even if we're actually stupider than animals that don't have culture we still outcompete them because our crystallized intelligence is vastly larger than their crystallized intelligence could ever be even though their fluid intelligence might be higher are you familiar with these terms yep sure yeah and it should be clear from context so like the octopus may be smarter than you uh, in terms of just figuring out things, but you've talked to an entire, like you are the heir to human culture since Buddha and Aristotle and like the first person who realized that these berries will kill you if they eat them and like grunted warnings to the other monkeys to not eat the berries. Like there's so much stuff that we have and most people will like will spend almost all of their cognitive effort just absorbing the myths and stories and uh, role models of their culture. And if you look throughout the history of humanity, the culture of engineering and innovation is extremely rare. Like most people don't have them. It's not a natural thing. Uh, the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, uh, European uh, ideas of enlightenment, free speech, uh, freedom of religion, industrial revolution. And this is one very particular culturally driven meme space that didn't exist throughout most of history. And there's an extent to which in the past, there was much more of a culture of exploring the frontier, tinkering in your garage, whereas it's nowadays and there's often a culture of well just kind of memorize the teacher's password and go along with things so that that's kind of what i was pointing to there's a lot more resources for people available if they have the engineer innovator culture but it's plausible that mainstream society is less good than it was in the past at passing on the engineer culture unless you're reading fiction that's specifically designed to do that Nice. That was a that was a fantastic answer. Yeah, one detail I remember, which just like raised an eyebrow. I haven't watched the Avenger movies, but mm-hmm. you mentioned that like the story arc involves you know them going on some some quest and defeating the guy, and then like restoring planet Earth or whatever to the state it was originally. Yeah. But like, presumably, if they have the powers to like defeat this kind of galaxy spanning, you know, villain, then they like at least have the powers to maybe like I know at least kind of end malaria or something <laughs> like this is yeah, kind of going yeah. going one step further um, point which I liked. A lot of the more popular genres of anime were 
like, you know what? I'm just going to go out and make myself more powerful for the hell of making myself more powerful because I want more money and power. Like anybody who does that in American fiction is the bad guy, but there's popular genres of anime and other things where none of the good guys get to do that. Like the good guys should be allowed to say, yeah, I want to be better. I just want to improve things. And you don't really see that as much. And like Lord of the Rings, I think was one of the main cultural tipping points where we move away from like, I, I'm using Mark Twain as an example because it's more famous, but I think it's emblematic of you know, Connecticut Yankee. The difference between Connecticut Yankee and in King Arthur's court and Lord of the Rings is very huge and instructive. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, my rational, everyone's rational fic reading list should start with Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court. It's the original <laughs> of nice. like, you get thrown back into a backwards environment and you use modern science and technology to make it better. Now, it is true that the narrator is quite obviously kind of a greedy bastard, but he still makes things better despite being a greedy bastard. And that's kind of part of the joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like this point that there are these features of, so having a drive to self-improvement and generally being ambitious about the effects you're having on the world. Yeah. Um, and then also having those ambitions be in some sense, not narrowly constrained to, you know, your your people or whatever. And, but and these are like marks of a villain, right? At least in contemporary um, popular fiction. I think this point that the, these properties are like none of them are necessarily bad, and if they're pointed in a direction of doing good things, then they're you know good yeah. to just the same extent, right? And it's a shame in some sense that the uh, the bad guys currently have a monopoly on, on these um, properties. Again, at least in kind of pop- popular imagination. Yeah, superhero fiction, like the, the, again, the whole hero's journey of you only exist to restore the status quo. And it's very weirdly anti-democratic. Like you're always supposed to identify with the superheroes, but you're like, these people did nothing to earn their powers. Like that would, if you think about it realistically, and some of the, you notice the more modern things like the boys, uh, like th- there's more and more of a backlash of, yeah, this would actually suck. Uh, if people had that power without earning and like the difference between proper sci-fi and superheroes in in proper sci-fi usually the people earn it through skills and technical knowledge rather than just randomly getting it let's do some final questions okay um we asked the same couple of questions to everyone um one is with respect to iaq is it any kind of research or work that you'd be especially excited to see people just do soon? I mean, potentially including people listening to this? So if someone who is listening to this is still at a very early career stage and wants to contribute, um, yeah, becoming an indoor environment engineer, EA EA does have a shortage of engineers. not we have plenty of computer engineers and you know that's an important thing to be working on but like hvac engineers structural engineers architects like as ea moves outside of the more elite universities and the super high-end mathematical and academic stuff i would encourage I, I, i see this a lot i think ea needs to expand and it needs to expand beyond like the elite of the elite and a lot of there, there are probably a lot of people out there who don't have what it takes to do technical AI alignment, who don't have the elite credentials from high-end universities, but are still capable of doing a lot of good engineer-type work. 
Mm-hmm. And my work with the ASHRAE Standards Committee has told me there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you have the technical expertise and are willing to serve on a standards committee, an engineering standards committee, you can do a lot of good for the world. Mm-hmm. So especially, and, and I've also noticed, uh, I've mentored a lot of people at EA Global and stuff, there's often a cultural pressure in the EA community to like drop whatever you're doing, drop your existing resources and networks and knowledge and jump onto the hot new thing that EA's decided it needs to do this year. That is so wrong. And it's, uh, especially if you're a mid-career person who already has some kind of engineering degree, just do what you're doing, follow your existing knowledge and connections and network, but just do it applying EA stuff. Mm-hmm. So if don't change career prospects, you can probably do a lot more good for the world by following your existing specialization, introducing people in there to EA and just kind of moving the needle there. Like Tyler Cowen said, like having an EA who's like in a position of power in the American Navy would be vastly more useful than you know, the marginal EA in a lot of things. So mm-hmm. I would discourage anyone who already has a good career in something else from working on engineering or air quality. But if you're already in engineering school, if you're good at engineering, if even if you're an HVAC technician somewhere who's just listening in on EA because you're intellectually curious and you know you don't have you're not part of the cognitive elite, you'll never be in the Oxford or you know Ivy League kind of people. Just yeah, there, there's lots of things that you can do with your engineering knowledge, basic facts about how engineering systems affects people's health, uh, basic facts about the quality adjusted life years, the life and health cost of things. It's very easy to move to do more research on just knowing what's going on. I mentioned earlier, we need to know the indoor environmental chemistry interactions with UV light. There's a lot of little technical questions like that, and there will probably be more as we investigate more issues. Anything relating to how the built environment systems affect people's life and health, especially in a global catastrophic risk system, um, we need to know more technical details. So that was an excellent answer. And then finally, um, yeah, if there are any books, papers, just any resources, kind of let's say two or three of them that you're, you'd be keen to recommend um, with respect to indoor air quality, then now is your chance. I'm constantly doing meta-analysis kind of things where like I do a big literature review and I remember a few papers. Like I can send you a link to uh, particular papers like I'll try to find the Tollbooth study afterwards. And honestly, your your blog post was a very good summary of the available evidence. And like, I'm it's very I, kind. I, I don't think I can recommend I, I didn't notice that you were missing anything important. So yeah, you're a good source there. You, you've done your homework. And I'll, I'll link to a bunch of um, reports that you've been involved with as well. Um, but with that, Dr. Richard Bruns, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. That was Richard Bruns on indoor air quality and far UVC. If you are looking for links or a transcript, then you can go to hearthisidea.com forward slash Bruns. That's B-R-U-N-S. And if you find this podcast valuable in some way, then probably the most effective way to help is to write just an honest review uh, wherever you're listening to this, Spotify, Apple, uh, wherever. We'd appreciate that. And you can also follow us on Twitter. We are just at hearthisidea. Okay, as always, a big thanks to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes, and thank you very much for listening.